Section 9 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor. Part 1. To the beloved and deplored memory of her, who was the inspirer and in part the author, of all that is best in my writings, the friend and wife whose exalted sense of truth and right was my strongest incitement, and whose approbation was my chief reward, I dedicate this volume. Like all that I have written for many years, it belongs as much to her as to me, but the work as it stands has had, in a very insufficient degree, the inestimable advantage of a revision some of the most important portions having been reserved for a more careful examination, which they are now destined never to receive, were I but capable of interpreting to the world one-half the great thoughts and noble feelings which are buried in her grave, I should be the medium of a greater benefit to it than is ever likely to arise from anything that I can write, unprompted and unassisted by her all but unrivaled wisdom, dedication to On Liberty, by John Stuart Mill. So this, then, is a love story of John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor, who first met in the year 1830. He was 25 and a clerk in the East India House. She was 23 and happily married to a man with a double chin. They saw each other for the first time at Mrs. Taylor's house at a function given in honor of a right honorable nobody from Essex. The Right Honourable has gone down into the dust of forgetfulness, his very name lost to us, like unto that of the man who fired the Alexandrian library. All we know is that he served as a pivotal point in the lives of two great people, and then passed on unwittingly into the obscurity from whence he came. On this occasion, the Right Honourable read an original paper on an important subject. Mrs. Taylor often gave receptions to eminent and learned personages, because her heart was a hunger to know and to become, and she vainly thought that the society of learned people would satisfy her soul. She was young. She was also impulsive, vivacious, ambitious. John Stuart Mill says she was rarely beautiful, but she wasn't. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. All things are comparative, and John Stuart Mill regarded Mrs. Taylor from the first night he saw her as a standard of feminine perfection. All women scaled down as they varied from her. As an actual fact, her features were rather plain, mouth and nose large, cheekbones in evidence, and one eye was much more open than the other, and this gave people who did not especially like her excuse for saying that her eyes were not mates. As for John Stuart Mill, he used, at times, to refer to the wide-open orb as her critical eye. Yet these eyes were lustrous, direct, and honest, and tokened the rare quality of mental concentration. Her head was square and long, and had corners. She carried the crown of her head high, and her chin in. We need not dally with old Mr. Taylor here. For us, he was only Mrs. Taylor's husband, a kind of useful marital appendendum. He was a merchant on change, with interests and argosies that applied to Tripoli, successful, busy, absorbed, with a twinge of gout and a habit of taking naps after dinner with a newspaper over his face. Moreover, he was an Oxford man, and this was his chief recommendation to the 18-year-old girl when she married him four years before. 
but education to him was now only a reminiscence. He had sloughed the old Greek spirit as a bird molts its feathers, with this difference, that a bird molts its feathers because it is growing a better crop, while Mr. Taylor wasn't growing anything but a lust after LSD. Once in two years there was an excursion to Oxford to attend a reunion of a Greek letter society, and perhaps twice in the winter certain ancient cronies came, drank musty ale, and smoked long clay pipes, and sang college songs in cracked falsetto. Mrs. Taylor was ashamed of them, disappointed. Was this the college spirit of which she had read so much? The old cronies leered at her as she came in to light the candles. They leered at her, and the one seated next to her husband poked that fortunate gentleman in the ribs and congratulated him on his matrimonial estate. Yet Mr. and Mrs. Taylor were happy, or reasonably so. He took much pride in her intellect, indulged her in all material things she wanted, and never thwarted her little ambitions to give functions to great men who came up from the provinces. She organized literary coterie to meet every Saturday and study Mary Wollstonecraft's book on the rights of women. Occasionally, she sat in the visitors' gallery at Parliament, but always behind the screen, and constantly she wrote out her thoughts on the themes of the time. Her husband never regarded these things as proof that she was inwardly miserable, unsatisfied, and in spirit was roaming the universe seeking a panacea for soul nostalgia. Not he, nor she. And so she gave the function to the right honorable nobody from Essex, and among thirty or forty other people was one John Stuart Mill, son of the eminent James Mill, historian and philosopher, also head examiner of the East India House. Mr. and Mrs. Taylor had made out the list of people between them, choosing those whom they thought had sufficient phosphorus so they would enjoy meeting a great theological meteoric personality from Essex. Mr. Taylor had seen young Mr. Mill in the East India House, where young Mr. Mill made out invoices with big seals on them. Mr. Taylor had said to Mr. Mill that it was a fine day, to which proposition Mr. Mill agreed. The Honorable James Mill was invited too, but could not come as he was president of the Land Tenure League, and a meeting was on for the same night. Mr. Taylor introduced to the company the eminent visitor from Essex. They had been chums together at Oxford. And then Mr. Taylor withdrew into a quiet corner and enjoyed a nap as a manuscript was being read in sonorous oratund. The subject was The Proper Sphere of Woman in the Social Cosmogony. By chance, Mrs. Taylor and John Stuart Mill sat next to each other. The speaker moved with stately tread through his firstly to his seventhly, and then proceeded to sum up. The argument was that of St. Paul amplified, Let women learn in subjection, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. God made woman for a helpmeet to man, etc. Mrs. Taylor looked at young Mr. Mill, and Mr. Mill looked at Mrs. Taylor. They were both thinking hard, and without a word spoken, they agreed with each other on this, that the speaker had no message. Young Mr. Mill noted that one of Mrs. Taylor's eyes was much wider open than the other, and that her head had corners. She seemed much beyond him in years and experience, although actually she was two years younger, a fact he did not then know. Does not a woman need to help me too? She wrote on the flyleaf of a book she held in her lap, and young Mr. Mill took the book and wrote beneath in a copper-plate East India hand, I do not know what a woman needs, but I think the speaker needs a helpmeet. And then Mrs. Taylor wrote, All help must be mutual. No man can help a woman unless she helps him. The benefit of help lies as much in the giving as in the receiving. 
After the function, Mrs. Taylor asked Mr. Mill to call. It is quite likely that on this occasion she asked a good many of the other guests to call. Mr. Mill called the next evening. John Stuart Mill was not a university man. He was an intellectual cosset, and educated in a way that made the English pedagogue stand aghast. So probably thousands of parents said, Go to! We will educate our own children! And went at their boys in the same way that James Mill treated his son. But the world has produced only one John Stuart Mill. Axtell, the trotter, in his day held both the two-year-old and the three-year-old record. He was driven in harness from the time he was weaned, and was given work that would have cocked most ankles and sent old horses over on their knees. But Axel stood the test and grew strong. Certain horsemen, seeing the success of Axel, tried his driver's plan, and one millionaire I know ruined a thousand colts and never produced a single racehorse by following the plan upon which Axel thrived. The father of John Stuart Mill would now be considered one of England's great thinkers, had he not been so unfortunate as to be thrown completely into the shadow by his son. As it is, James Mill lives in history as a man who insisted that his baby three years old should be taught the Greek alphabet. When five years old, this baby spoke with an Attic accent and corrected his elders who dropped the aspirate. With unconscious irony, John Stuart Mill wrote in his autobiography, I learned no Latin until my eighth year, at which time, however, I was familiar with Aesop's fables, most of the Nabasis, the memorabilia of Xenophon, and the lives of the philosophers by Diogenes Laertius, part of Lucian, and the Ad Demonicum and Ad Nicoclem of Isocrates. Besides these, he had also read all of Plato, Plutarch, Gibbon, Hume, and Roland, and was formulating in his mind a philosophy of history. Whether these things educated the boy or not will always remain an unsettled question for debating societies. But that he learned and grew through constant association with his father, there is no doubt. Wherever the father went, the boy trotted along, a pad in one hand and a pencil in the other, always making notes, always asking questions, and always answering propositions. The long out-of-door walks doubtless saved him from death. He never had a childhood, and if he ever had a mother, the books are silent concerning her. He must have been an incubator baby, or else been found under a cabbage leaf. James Mill treated his wife as if her office and opinions were too insignificant to consider seriously. She was only an unimportant incident in his life. James Mill was a typical beef-eating Englishman described by Taine. According to Dr. Bain's most interesting little book on John Stuart Mill, the youth at nine was appointed to supervise education of the rest of the family, a position more pleasing to his vanity than helpful to his manners. That he was a beautiful prig at this time goes without saying. The scaffolding of learning he mistook for the edifice, a fallacy borrowed from his father. At the age of fourteen he knew as much as his father, and acknowledged it. He was then sent to France to study the science of government under Sir Samuel Bentham. His father's intent was that he should study law, and in his own mind was a strong conviction that he was set apart, and that his life was sacred to the service of humanity. A year at the study of law, and a more or less intimate association with barristers, relieved him of the hallucination that a lawyer's life is consecrated to justice and the rights of man. Quips, quirks, and quillets were not to his taste. James Mill held the office of chief examiner in the East India House at a salary equal to $7,500 a year. The gifted son was now 19 and at work as a junior clerk under his father at 20 pounds a year. 
Before the year was up, he was promoted, and when he was 21, his salary was 100 pounds a year. There are people who will say, of course, his father pushed him along, but the fact that after his father's death, he was promoted by the directors to head of the office disposes of all suspicion of favoritism. The management of the East India Company was really a matter of statesmanship, and the direct, methodical, and practical mind of Mill fitted him for the place. Thomas Carlyle, writing to his wife in Scotland in the year 1831, said, This young Mill, I fancy and hope, is a being one can love. A slender, rather tallish and elegant youth, with Roman-nosed face, earnestly smiling blue eyes, modest, remarkably gifted, great position of utterance, calm a distinctly able and amiable youth. So now behold him at twenty-five, a student and scholarly recluse, delving all day in accounts and dispatches, grubbing in books at night, and walking an hour before sunrise in the park every morning. It was about then that he accepted the invitation of Mrs. Taylor to call. I do not find that James Mill ever disputed the proposition that women have souls. He evidently considered the matter quite beyond argument. They hadn't. His son, at this time, was of a like opinion. John Stuart Mill had not gone into society, and women to him were simply undeveloped men, to be treated kindly and indulgently. As mental companions, the idea was unthinkable, and love was entirely out of his orbit. All of his energies had been worked up into great thoughts. Dr. Bain says that at twenty-five, John Stuart Mill was as ignorant of sex as a girl of ten. He called a Mrs. Taylor because she had pleased him when she said, The person who helps another gets as much out of the transaction as the one who is helped. This was a thought worthwhile. Perhaps Mrs. Taylor had borrowed the idea. But anyway, it was something to repeat it. He revolved it over in his mind all day, off and on. To help another is to help yourself. A helpmeet must grow by the exercise of being useful. Therefore, a woman grows as her husband grows. She cannot stand if she puts forth intelligent effort. All help is mutual. One eye was wider than the other. Her head had corners. She carried her chin in. John Stuart Mill wished the day would not drag so. After supper, he would go and call on Mrs. Taylor and ask her to explain what she meant by all help being mutual. It was a trifle paradoxical. The Taylors were just finishing tea when young Mr. Mill called. They were surprised and delighted to see him. He was a bit abashed and could not quite remember what it was he wanted to ask Mrs. Taylor, but he finally got around to something else just as good. Mrs. Taylor had written an article on the subjugation of women. Would Mr. Mill take it home with him and read it, or would he like to hear her read a little of it now? Mr. Mill's fine face revealed his delight at the prospect of being read to, so Mrs. Taylor read a little aloud to Mr. Mill, while Mr. Taylor took a much-needed nap in the corner. In a few days, Mr. Mill called to return Mrs. Taylor's manuscript and leave a little essay he himself had written on a similar theme. Mr. Taylor was greatly pleased at this fine friendship that had sprung up between his gifted wife and young Mr. Mill. Mrs. Taylor was so much improved in health, so much more buoyant. Thursday night soon became sacred to the Taylors to Mr. Mill, and Sunday he always took dinner with them. Goldwyn Smith, a trifle grumpy, with a fine forgetfulness as to the saltiness of time, says a young Mr. Mill had been kept such a recluse that when he met Mrs. Taylor, he considered that he was the first man to discover the potency of sex, and that he thought his experience was unique in the history of mankind. Perhaps love does make a fool of a man. I really cannot say. If so, then John Stuart Mill never recovered his sanity. 
Suppose we let John speak for himself. I quote from his autobiography. It was at the period of my mental progress, which I have now reached, that I formed the friendship which has been the honor and chief blessing of my existence, as well as the source of a great part of all that I have attempted to do, or hope to effect hereafter, for human improvement. My first introduction to the lady, who after a friendship of twenty years consented to become my wife, was in 1830, when I was in my twenty-fifth and she in her twenty-third year. I very soon felt her to be the most admirable person I had ever known. It is not to be supposed that she was, or that anyone, at the age at which I first saw her, could be all that she became afterwards. Least of all, could this be true of her, with whom self-improvement, progress in the highest and in all senses, was a law of her nature, a necessity equally from the ardor with which she sought it, and from the spontaneous tendency of faculties which could not receive an impression or an experience without making it the source or occasion of an accession of wisdom. In her, complete emancipation from every kind of superstition, including that which attributes a pretended perfection to the order of nature in the universe, and an earnest protest against many things which are still part of the established constitution of society, resulted not from the intellect, but from strength, a noble and elevated feeling, and coexistent with a highly reverential nature. In general, spiritual characteristics, as well as in temperament and organization, I have often compared her, as she was at that time, to Shelley. But in thought and intellect, Shelley, so far as his powers were developed in his short life, was but a child compared with what she ultimately became. Alike in the highest regions of speculation and in the smaller practical concerns of daily life, her mind was the same perfect instrument, piercing to the heart and marrow of the matter, always seizing the essential idea or principle, the same exactness and rapidity of operation, pervading as it did her sensitive as well as her mental qualities, would, with her gifts of feeling and imagination, have fitted her for a consummate artist, as her fiery and tender soul and her vigorous eloquence would certainly have made her a great orator, and her profound knowledge of human nature, and discernment and sagacity in practical life, would, in the times when such a career was open to women, have made her eminent among the rulers of mankind. Her intellectual gifts did but minister to a moral character at once the noblest and the best balance which I have ever met with in my life. Her unselfishness was not that of a taught system of duties, but of a heart which thoroughly identified itself with the feelings of others, and often went to excess in consideration for them by imaginatively investing their feelings with intensity of her own. The passion of justice might have been thought to be her strongest feeling, but for her boundless generosity and a lovingness ever ready to pour itself forth upon any or all human beings who were capable of giving the smallest feelings in return. The rest of her moral characteristics were such as naturally accompany these qualities of mind and heart. The most genuine modesty combined with the loftiest pride, a simplicity and sincerity which were absolute towards all who were fit to receive them the utmost scorn for whatever was mean and cowardly, and a burning indignation at everything brutal or tyrannical, faithless or dishonorable in conduct and character, while making the broadest distinction between mala in se and mere mala prohibita, between acts giving evidence of intrinsic badness in feeling and character, and those which are only violations of conventions either good or bad, violations which, whether in themselves right or wrong, are capable of being committed by persons in every other respect lovable and admirable. 
to be admitted into any degree of mental intercourse with a being of these qualities could not but have a most beneficial influence on my development, though the effect was only gradual, and several years elapsed before her mental progress and mine went forward in the complete companionship they at last attained. The benefit I received was far greater than any which I could hope to give, though to her, who had at first reached her opinions by the moral intuition of a character of strong feeling, there was doubtless help as well as encouragement to be derived from one who had arrived at many of the same results by study and reasoning, and in the rapidity of her intellectual growth, her mental activity, which converted everything into knowledge, doubtless drew from me, as it did from other sources, many of its materials. What I owe, even intellectually, to her is, in its detail, almost infinite. Of its general character, a few words will give some, though a very imperfect, idea. With those who, like the best and wisest of mankind, are dissatisfied with human life as it is, and whose feelings are wholly identified with its radical amendment, there are two main regions of thought. One is a region of ultimate aims, the constituent elements of the highest realizable ideal of human life. The other is that of the immediately useful and practically attainable. In both these departments, I have acquired more from her teaching than from all other sources taken together. And, to say truth, it is in these two extremes principally that real certainty lies. My own strength lay wholly in the uncertain and slippery intermediate region, that of theory or moral and political science, respecting the conclusions of which, in any of the forms in which I have received or originated them, whether as political economy, analytic psychology, logic, philosophy, or history, or anything else, it is not the least of my intellectual obligations to her that I have derived from her a wise skepticism, which, while it has not hindered me from following out the honest exercise of my thinking faculties to whatever conclusions might result from it, has put me on my guard against holding or announcing these conclusions with a degree of confidence which the nature of such speculations does not warrant, and has kept my mind not only open to admit, but prompt to welcome and eager to seek, even on the questions on which I have most meditated, any prospect of clearer perceptions and better evidence. I have often received praise, which in my own right I only partially deserve, for the greater practicality that is supposed to be found in my writings, compared with those of most thinkers who have been equally addicted to large generalizations. The writings in which this quality has been observed were not the work of one mind, but of the fusion of two. One is eminently practical in its judgments and perceptions of things present, as it was high and bold in its anticipations for futurity. End of section 9